From Brooklyn, New York, I'm Adam Teeter, and this is a Vine Pair Next Round Conversation. We're bringing you these conversations between our regular podcast episodes to give a clearer picture of what's happening to restaurants and bars during the COVID-19 crisis. Today, I'm again really lucky to be talking with Alexis, Patrick, and Moshe, the partners in the amazing wine bars and restaurants, Ruffian and Kindred in New York City's East Village. Um, for those of you that listened to the podcast earlier uh, in March, we they were some of the first people we talked to when all the crazy shit started to hit the fan. And again, we are really lucky to have you guys back to talk to us about what's going on now. So Alexis, Patrick, Moshe, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Adam. Thank you. So do you guys want to just give us a quick update? I guess the last time we spoke, right, you were, you know, just amazing in, in your transparency of sort of what was happening with your businesses, your negotiations with your landlords. We were at a point at that time where, you know, Outdoor dining wasn't even a thing anyone was thinking about. You guys hadn't started the Ruffian Wine Shop yet. Um, we were just talking about, you know, how are you adapting to to being closed? You know, we, we talked about how you generously, you know, opened up your refrigerators and and gave food to your employees. And you were you everyone was just kind of trying to get their bearings at that point, right? No one really knew what was happening. I think PPP was just beginning to be talked about. Um, obviously a lot has changed since then. So I'd love if, if you could update the listeners on what's happened uh, to, to your businesses since uh, we, we last spoke and kind of bring me up to speed as to, to where we are today. How many years ago was that? <laughs> yeah, it was a long time ago. <laughs> I could barely trying to figure out what happened. <laughs> oh, a lot, a lot has happened. Um, I'm saying, I, you know, just in a quick summary, I would say that both Ruffy and Kindred have continued, we've continued to adapt and invent as we've gone along. We've probably created, you know, three to five different iterations of what a restaurant is during this period. Um, so we went from, you know, doing a wine shop at Ruffian um, and provisions at Kindred to doing, complete, you know, full outdoor dining, um, full service and during that time, con continuing to update and adapt as the new guidelines came out by the hour. So as Pat and Alexa said, yeah, it feels like years ago. Um, but we've been able to survive by continuously adapting and hustling. Um, and that's where we are today. I know that was a quick summary, but Pat or Alexis might be able to jump in. That was a pretty quick summary, Moshe. There's a lot more that's happened, but I understand it also. <laughs> it, all, it all feels like a blur. Um, yeah. So Patrick, so what has happened at Ruffian since all this happened? Um, so I think we're talking about April, May, that territory when we were talking. Um, and in around April and May, we started to do um, literally one, we started with one dish to go, just a kachapuri, like Georgian style cheese boat. Um, and at that moment, when we were just trying to figure out what any kind of sales would look like that weren't strictly online, um, you know, we, we wanted to pick a dish that we thought um, reflected us making something from scratch um, and doing something that related to the caucuses where um, a lot of the wines that we champion come from and we wanted to get to do something new and we hadn't done Kashapur yet. So yeah, we started with just that dish and for at least two weeks, I want to say we were just selling glasses, you know, like plastic cups of wine to go like orange wine, 12 glass or $12 a glass or something to go <laughs> out the door with a, with a Kashapuri and you could go eat in the park. You know, go. Uh, we're next to Tompkins Square, so you know it was really warm out back then. Or, or in fact, I think that was even before the summer, really. And we moved into summer and started to do like we put a, we built a platform at first, and we just had just like patio umbrellas out there. And like on rainy days, it was just overwhelming. You know, like you couldn't do anything. Um, and over about a month, I think we went from just a patio to building um, tent structure above it. Um, mm. and started to do like, you know, almost like proper service. Um, and as soon as we felt like we could do something fairly proper, we kind of solidified our, our, our direction that we were going with, which for Ruffian was, um, we actually made ourselves vegetarian. Um, oh, wow. a significant change for us. I mean, we, we were always a vegetable championing restaurant, I guess. And we always tried to cook things that we thought were, you know, um, uh, something on the edge of what we were interested in, trying to grow a grow a new direction. Um, but that was a pretty big change, um, and enabled us to, I think, grow grow an audience that was very willing to try stuff at that time. Um, it allowed us to reduce our price point 
So what our customers saw by 20% in a stretch where most restaurants actually were increasing prices. And uh, mm-hmm. this was at that weird moment where New York state or city allowed us to do that 10% tax, which was just a terrible idea and which we <laughs> didn't do. I mean, um, doesn't make any sense, but why, why would you be tricking your customers into paying more? You just charge them what you want to charge them. So right. we tried, we were actually in that stretch trying to lower our prices because we felt as customers of places like ourselves that we had less money and we were very unclear about what was going on. And, you know, having something just nice and just delicious and an opportunity to go out was all we needed. So this enabled us to do that. Um, and we grew more ambitious and pretty early decided to do a tasting menu. And at these with vegetarian food, we were able to do a tasting menu. I think it was at first at 25 bucks. And now it's at $30 per person, three courses. And it's about to become that's a amazing. meal. Uh, and it's one of the few tasting menus I think that's open right now in New York. And, um, so that, that, that allowed us to start to dial in concept again, um, and get back to the roots of what we do, you know, which, um, for us on the wine side, myself and Alexis are you know, the wine people for us, it's, you know, tasting a lot of wine, which was complicated. And so that was the next step. It was like, well, you know, era of when you don't get to taste wine, how do you taste wine? Um, that yeah. led first to us, um, adapting our outdoor area to be able to do, like setting up the distributor that comes in to taste us at one table, setting up a middle table where we would put our glassware. Um, uh, and then we would step back to a third table where we would taste. So essentially like we would never be six feet, even within six feet of our distributors, they could pour wine in the middle for us. Then we would take the glass, drink it, spit, you know, taste, spit, et cetera, put our glasses back. They would refill it. Um, and that, that's been a weird process. I bring this up and I'm supposed to be talking about Ruffian because that led to the idea for us of doing KinCon, which Alexis and Motion will get into later, which became the um, Orange Wine Festival we did at Kindred. I mean, because I, I, I need, yeah, I need, I gotta get, I gotta get Alexis in here too, because like you both are like famous for loving to work with like thousands of different books. And I, I can't imagine that that was easy now. And so the fact that you still, it sounds like kept doing it, just blows me away because I know a lot of other, you know, places around the city that basically like went to one or two reps. I mean, what was that like? I mean, was it just, I mean, obviously I'm assuming the people who sell to you were, were very thankful that you were still willing to to meet with them. Um, how has, because I think you, you now, you probably have a really great like look into that too. What's it been like for them, for, for, for reps who are selling wine right now? Um, how have you noticed that, that their worlds have changed and especially for the kinds of wines that they, that some of them are selling that, you know, that you guys buy the, the wines that are kind of harder to find that are, you know, that, that are more on allocation. Um, you know, is it, does it seem like their lives have gotten harder to you too when you meet with them and, and they taste? Well, right in the beginning in April when we were trying, well, first of all, we had a lot of inventory to be able to sell, um, cause right. we were sitting on a lot. Uh, especially at Ruffian, we, we basically sold off the whole cellar. <laughs> um, wine reps would check in periodically, but they were, you know, a lot of our reps are friends and they were incredibly sensitive to the fact that, you know, they didn't want to add insult to injury by being like, Hey, buy wine. You know, the feedback I got from them early on was that, you know, they were selling because wine shops and liquor stores were doing great, but it was all things that would retail for between 10 and $15. So they were moving quantity, but they weren't moving allocation wines and they weren't really moving um, things on a higher price point. Uh, So it definitely hurt them, particularly people who uh, most of their accounts were restaurants. They really got slammed. I, I can't speak for Patrick, but I mean, obviously we were very conservative when we started buying inventory again for both restaurants, but I was relying on my notes from the previous two months pre-COVID. So I just would look back at my tasting notes from, you know, a month or two prior. So I felt pretty current and confident in the things that I was buying Uh because a lot of reps weren't coming to the city and they weren't sure how to conduct tastings, um, whether to use those little mini bottles or to drop off sample bottles. Uh, it was a little uh, ambiguous at the beginning. And I guess we've just sort of slowly ramped it up. I'd say in the last maybe two months, we've been doing a lot more in-persons, usually now like three to four a week. Wow, okay. And the other impact I would note would be in some ways, because you brought up the weird stuff, <laughs> the weird shit that we carry. In <laughs> some ways, this has been a help 
because a lot of things that would be allocation weren't really moving. And so things that would have flown out the door really quickly, when we would inquire about them, they would still be there. Um, so that kind of helped. But for people bringing in or trying to get new containers in, there's been a delay with some of that. That's crazy. And has like sort of the fact that you guys really have have a, have a clear thesis in terms of the wines that you pour you think been a benefit to both of the places over over the last few months and that you know i really know that i can't find really amazing georgian wines greek wines etc at a lot of places besides ruffian and kindred that you guys sort of do the work for me did you find that that was also true for for the majority of your customers and has you know been what's sort of sort of helped continue to make you a destination certainly for ruffian wine shop i mean the, the initial feedback we got from people was not that they weren't buying wine from a multitude of different restaurants and stores. It was that they knew that we carried stuff that they couldn't get elsewhere. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Um, okay. So obviously, I, Patrick, I, I was just so excited about talking about the fact that you guys were tasting six feet apart and stuff that we got off track, which I apologize about. Um, but I mean, basically, um, are you guys, so are you still open and operational? Oh, sorry, let Ruffian? me jump back in. We were, um, we we're probably talking about around August, moving yeah. into September at that point when, um, from Alexis yep. and I were really just pulling from our previous notes, buying stuff from previous years, which at least let me just make one caveat since mm-hmm. we're talking probably to mostly professionals. You know, I think what we noticed or what's challenging um, is one, I think, you know, quality, even though we want to say in the wine world, like X vineyard always makes great wine or something like that. You know, you, you, you go to, um, uh, Helgenstein and Comtal or something like you're going to get you're going to get something expected, etc. And, and I think um, you know that's partly true, but we realize um, how much work and how much added value we put in by just tasting through many many different SKUs and different producers and finding one that was just the right thing at the right time and fit in with everything else. Um, and not being able to taste as often has forced us to um, rely on, I think, a second best principle for finding deliciousness, which is, you know, that that kind of like backup sommelier knowledge or the trust in our di- distributors, mm-hmm. instead of getting that penultimate moment where we literally taste it and we're like, oh, that's delicious. This tastes like, and it might have nothing to do with the um, typical description of that region. So, you know, the, the most interesting things about Ruffian are often the wines that don't fit nicely into their traditional um, descriptor, the Gruner Veltliner that doesn't taste like you think it's going to taste. Um, so we found ourselves not, I, I found wine um, less exciting in that stretch in April, May, June. Um, I was also in a very depressed mood, um, which therapy has helped a lot. And, um, and also I was coming off of having COVID in January, February, and my palate was fucked. And I couldn't taste a right. lot of things. I wasn't getting a lot of enjoyment. It's been so moving out of September into um, into the last slightly, you know, fall months. Um, I think we've gotten more into this rhythm, and um, I think that we've been talking more about exciting flavors and exciting how the flavor inspires the the meal or something like that. Um, and now um, we'll get into the things we moved into most recently. We've gotten back into a lot of the themey, um, challenging projects that we used to do at Ruffian and Kindred. Um, which require, you know, like if we put right. out um, uh, 15 or 20 wines on a, on a specific menu, like a, uh, let's say on an orange wine menu, that meant that we probably tasted 100 plus. So, you know, it took like we need uh, several weeks of lead up if we only taste with four people every week just to get that density of tasting in. Um, and if we expect our customers are coming here saying, oh, Patrick and Alexis or, or Libby or Charlotte tasted everything and therefore it's good. Well, we better taste everything. So it, it's been the last few months where I really felt like right. we got back into our old gig. And now I think as Motion and Alexis are going to say, all of a sudden, I think we started to feel like we were doing something new and different, maybe even more exciting than what we were doing before. You know, that the challenges forced us to, to adapt in a way that all of a sudden we were more happy about. Um, and I feel really proud about Ruffian's changes yeah, Pat, I would, I would also add, um, along with the tasting menu for the food at Ruffian, it's pretty incredible that there's also a wine pairing option and yeah. um, really, really cool and changing all the time. And that allows us to really like one of the things that I was 
challenged with as we were opening back up, and I think you guys would agree, was that how do we provide hospitality behind a mask and six feet away? How do you care for people and make them feel taken care of and provide the dining out experience without endangering staff or endangering the customers, but not have them feel like you're barking at them because, you know, they can't hear you. Um, And one of those ways were those little details to bring the ruffian and then later the kindred experience in a evolved way, I guess, in this weird new circumstance. I mean, did you guys start taking reservations at ruffian and you hadn't taken them before, right? Yeah, we did four four years, four and a half years of no reservations at Ruffian, um, and we started doing reservations post COVID. Um, they have been um, uh, really wonderful. I'm very surprised. I think that we all felt like you know reservations bad thing, um, specifically in the COVID sense. Since we don't do indoor dining, while we're not required to take people's numbers, the reservations actually do that for us. And so, if someone were to get sick at a restaurant, we have a very good means of reaching out to everyone. Um, so, wow, never thought about reservations in that sense, but I mean, um, really, really helpful, uh, in terms of communication, you know, which, Hey, that might happen, you know, um, never. So that, that's been helpful. And also one thing that I I used to work as a, um, nature D Alexis used to work as a nature D, I think maybe most of it as well. Um, and one thing that I, I missed, you know, for the last five years at Ruffian and I really love now at both Kindred and, and Ruffian is, that you get to, um, if somebody uh, comes to the restaurant and they make a reservation, so they have, you know, their identity now in, um, we do resi, so in resi, you know, we, we can take down notes about your experience to enable us to do better or bring in other ideas in a subsequent experience. Um, and mm-hmm. we now get this moment, like, even though we know our customers well, and Alexis and I would always try to do this, if one of us weren't here, for instance, how would another random bartender know you know that on one night we did, had one person at x with us so now they could see like I've, I've opened up the notes and read like um you know this person loves x wine and we don't have that wine anymore and i immediately look at the reservation um when i come in at three in the uh, three in the afternoon or two in the afternoon i'm like oh cool this person who i don't know if i've ever met before i already know like i'm excited about them trying this this and this by the glass or if they ask about it by, by the bottle this this and this you know, it was like bringing back in actually one of those fine dining elements that I don't always love fine dining, but there's so many wonderful things about it. And it allowed us to insert that in a casual experience and allow people to define their experience or us to define the experience more, more you know, better and more, more specifically. That's, that's crazy. That, and that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I will say, just add to what Patrick said, The I think we've always had this discussion as a group, you know, with Ruffian, since there's 20 seats, it's tiny, um, and there was it was almost impossible to do it before, but then certainly the pandemic challenged us, how do we come back and, you know, have some hospitality, but also do it in a more efficient way? Um, and I think the two answers, at least in the early parts, other than the wine shop, were tasting menu and you know, offering reservations. Um, and like Patrick said, they've proven to both work incredibly well. And it's something we'll continue to do. Wow. So, so it sounds like now at this point, Patrick Ruffian is still open. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to jump too far ahead. I want to sort of talk to you guys about, about the decisions uh, you're going to make in the future as both. But so motion Alexis, can you talk about Kindred? Cause Kindred always was, was more of the, the restaurant, right? Whereas Ruffian was the, the wine bar that also served great food. So, so what, what, what happened at Kindred? Um, well, so Kindred, you know, had only been open for a few months and was still, you know, getting its feet under it in terms of its identity and coming out strong and getting kind of set in people's minds. And then we had to close. So um, I think we had kind of, when we were really reopening for, for business, we started with Ruffian and put our efforts there first to get it kind of rolling because it was the known quantity, I guess. And then we moved on to to what to do with Kindred. And at the when we very first reopened, we were looking at doing provisions, sort of CSA grocery, because at the time things were still difficult to acquire in the city. Um, it didn't quite take off in the way that we thought. I think that maybe we joined it just a little late, and a lot of people had left the neighborhood by that point. 
Mm, interesting. Okay. Luckily, it didn't take very long for um, outdoor to get going, and we, you know, hopped right on that immediately. I think they announced it, and like that afternoon, we started like uh, commandeering the space outside of the restaurant so that cars wouldn't park there. That's awesome. <laughs> That's true. Um, to the chagrin of our neighbors, unfortunately, but. So outdoor has really been great. Our landlords worked with us well. We've been very fortunate at both restaurants to be able to take frontage on either side that is larger than our frontage footprint, like wider. And so, you know, I do know that there was a collective sigh of relief amongst us and the staff when we were open operationally as a restaurant again, because it was like, oh, we know how to do this. We know how to be a restaurant, you know. We don't know very well how to do provisions on the fly, but we can definitely be a restaurant. That worked out really great. And, I, and then um, I guess the next iteration to help kind of bolster sales, Moshe, would have been work from Kindred. Am I right or am I skipping something? The, the virtual menu, which I think was Moshe's idea, but I don't really remember. That that was really effective. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you guys want to fill in about that. But I, I thought yeah. That was- sure, yeah. Yeah, part of um, the evolution of the outdoor dining. Um, I'm saying we went through so many different iterations of that as well between mm-hmm. you know how big the menu is, how small the menu is changing overnight from provisions to full service. Um, and then we decided to do uh, get rid of paper menus and go to digital, uh, you know, for the COVID precautions and less, less contact, but also more efficient and it's, it's just more immediate. And that has proven, I think, to work out really well. Um, we were able to customize using uh, Mies Boxes, uh, the company, um, and we were able to customize what, you know, what guests can see you know, with, with what the items are, but more than that, it cut, the idea was, you know, how do we offer the same details for the same hospitality again, without having too much front facing, you know, contact or getting too close to each other. And with this, you know, with this digital menu system, you're able to provide all the details that anyone would need to know allergies or where, where does, what grape is this wine? Where does it come from? Um, so that, that proved to be very useful and helped us continue to adapt in the, in the new model. So I, I have a question for you guys. Cause like, obviously this is a little off topic, but I'm, I'm curious to, to hear your take. Cause there's been like, I mean, I think that these articles are ridiculous, but you know, like you have certain people like the New Yorker published an article recently that was like, I'm sick of digital menus right? That like digital menus make me, everyone get on their phones and we don't talk to each other, whatever. And my sort of reaction to this is it's a fucking pandemic guys. Like we're really, we're really publishing articles that we don't like phone menus, like maybe get over yourself. But I'm, I'm curious, do you, are you aware of those kinds of articles? Is it just, I am because you know, I'm a journalist in the space and I'm reading all of it. And like, you know, if you are aware of those articles, is your reaction the same as mine, which is kind of like, this is ridiculous that anyone even is writing them and that someone's publishing them? (laughs) Uh, Kind of, yeah. I'm saying, I, you know, it's interesting if people are complaining about being on their phones for a menu, they're usually on their phones other, you know, in general at the table. So yeah, um, usually on Tinder. (laughs) Right. So, and I think for the most part, our guests actually have had great feedback overall, I would say, at both Ruffian and Kindred. And I think, you know, we've done them in a creative way. We have like little, we have the QR code on coasters at Kindred with our logo. Um, so I think people, it's a little more inviting than just having, you know, printed paper. But I, I think it provides a lot of the info anybody would need from a server or a sommelier that, they may not otherwise be able to get right now because of the restrictions of six feet and just general, you know, hygiene. I I will, I'm going to come in just on the opposite side of that is that I I actually, I, I don't love them. I think that handheld menus are a part of the dining experience and the overall aesthetic. Um, But just because I don't like something doesn't mean that I shouldn't, you know, change and adapt. Right. You know, we there, there are pluses to the digital menu, um, several of which, you know, we listed here and it does look great. We've made it as close to our restaurant's aesthetics as possible. And that's just the way it is right now. You know, you do the best with what what the changing world is presenting you. So I brought it up because I, I wanted to say something else about Ruffian. Um, and so, you know, um, Alexis and I have sort of, uh, during the pandemic, Alexis has predominantly run Kindred's list. I predominantly run Ruffian's list. 
uh, along with uh, at Ruffian. I, um, I currently do it with uh, Blueby Winters or Beverage Wrecker, and over at Kindred, um, Alexis uh, does the, beverage, the cocktails with Charlotte, who's our, our bartender. So, you know, while we talk all the time, um, it's enabled us, we've each kind of picked up different things about the digital menu that we like and focused on it. And um, Alexis has used the digital menu, especially for the bottle list at Kindred, to be very easy to get through and very seamless. Um, I think I've never, you know, like you can get through almost whatever it is, 50 bottles, very quickly scanning your eye around uh, on a phone without flipping through a big book. Uh, you know, when you're doing that in a wine bar, you're always knocking a glass over or something. So I, I found actually that experience at Kindred is really efficient. And um, since we have cocktails and other things, we really focused on streamlining it and making it easy for a guest to get in and out and get what they want. Um, and at Ruffian, which is mm-hmm. also pictures, sure, also pictures, um, which, hey, you could never have that in a, um, in a, a pre, you know, in a paper menu. And then right. at, at Ruffian, since we've always been more um, like the wines are always more unusual in that sense, um, we're not trying to get the classics of Croatia, Slovenia. We're trying to get eccentric wines from around the world. It's enabled us to, um, you would come to Ruffian, we would taste you on something. And we would also give you, um, you know, fun descriptions about them where the menu is categories and fun categories. Um, and that was a piece that had been taken from Ruffian by not having paper menus and not having the sit down experience. So through the digital menu, we try to bring that experience back. And as a staff over here, um, along with Alexis, who's wine with us too, we come up with descriptions of the wines. Um, and when you click on a wine, um, you're looking for the menu. You see all the options by the glass. You could click or by the bottle. You can click on it. Then you see a picture of the bottle. Then you see, you know, 50 words on what we think about the wine and what it goes with and, you know, stuff like that. Um, we could never have given you that consistent of experience previously. Right. That, that, I mean, that, that's, that's awesome. And that, and I agree with you. I think there are, there are definitely things I miss about Alexis, the paper menu, but I also, there's things I kind of like about these digital menus and I sort of understand that they are just, it is what it is. You know, we, when we started with the digital menu, um, this company, Meesbox, um, it wasn't pretty, right? It was an ugly looking menu, but we, we started on early because we knew the reality of the situation. Um, and instead of trying to fight against the reality, looked at it and said, Okay, then well, what can we do to make it better? Um, and Moshe and then us as well reached out to the owner of the company and actually asked them to work with us to help streamline it, you know, to, to make it, um, to add pictures, to, add, um, to a- allow us to put our logo on the front page. Um, and we invested in it over several months and over several months it got better. And if con- people continue to invest in it with their creativity and their passion, it would also continue to get better. So I don't know the person who wrote this article, and I think that it's dis- it's detached from what our customers have told us who enjoy it and certainly don't want to be unsafe. But also, it's just this attitude of like, during the COVID thing, during all the aspects that we're going to discuss, um, embracing the real situation and at least trying to um, inhabit it with your love and care enables something that might not be your first choice to maybe all of a sudden be different or better or more helpful than you imagine it to be. And for people to sit on the sidelines and just be upset, you know, they'll still be upset at the same thing. And as we're getting towards winter and people are upset about not being prepared for outdoor winter dining, you know, this was something that we invested in over, over a lot of time and continue to tinker and adapt at it over several months with our love and also, with, you know, with money and with time. Um, and so, for, you know, I think to hear somebody say that, I would want to say, you know, I'm glad you're not a restaurateur because, you know, the restaurateurs need to be adapting because we don't know what the next problem will be. And we don't know that this is going to go away. So maybe we're stuck with these online menus forever. Let's make them better if we are, you know. So another question. So I, I think it was in July. I can't, I can't keep anything straight anymore either. At some point, New York City allowed 25% indoor dining. Um, did you ever consider doing indoor dining? And are you doing indoor dining now? Moshe? <laughs> Uh, well, for, before, Adam, if you don't mind, just before that, I just wanted to finish the Kindred evolution. Oh, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so I would say, you know, Kindred was kind of rolling along, um, doing full service outside dining only um, uh-huh. for, you know, a couple months. Uh, and, you know, we were double the size in terms of labor we were, at least at that point. So, and it's always been harder to control in terms of finances and uh, cutting costs. And so as you know, we had a couple of really scary weeks right after Labor Day, I think it was, where, you know, people just leave town, you know, things started dropping off, and we had to reinvent again. 
Okay. Um, and then one of the ideas that one of our employees, Jake, had brought up, you know, early on, and then you know, my wife Sakina also mentioned again while I was while we were on uh, just uh, away for the weekend was why don't people just work from Kindred, um, you know, during the day? And it's something I've thought about as well for a while because I've worked in WeWorks. We've all kind of done the co-working thing. And I was like, you know what? We're at a scary spot. Let's pull the trigger. Let's make it happen. And I think within two days, uh, we pulled together a work from Kindred uh, service where we opened up our patio from, you know, 9 a.m. till 4 p.m. for people to come and have an outside co-working space. Um, socially distanced for 25 bucks a day, free coffee, you know, all the, you know, charging stations, everything you'd get in an office, but outside when the weather was still really nice, um, our chef, you know, Josh put together, you know, three really delicious, but simple dishes for lunch and people were able to get wine. Oh, Moshe, you mentioned Josh. I just wanted to say our chef partner, Josh, um, who's not on this interview has been absolutely killing it. And has just been so adaptive to all the challenges that have come his way. So just wanted to throw that in there. Absolutely. Um, agreed. And I think um, that's, that helped, you know, work from Kindred actually launch really well because people needed something to eat and it was delicious. And they come, they came back for that and the happy hour specials. Um, and so I would say it was, it, it proved to be really successful. And it would, again, it was another eye opener, I think for all of us where, you know, we threw another idea at the wall, put it together overnight, you know, worked crazy hours, but understood there was a need for it. We had, you know, a hundred, you know, people who dined or did the work from Kindred over a six to eight week period multiple times. Um, and that's something that we can certainly do in the spring and we will do in a, you know, in a better fashion now that we understand how to run it. Um, but that, but more importantly, it took us out of this whole a financial hole for a minute where, you know, it allowed us to survive another week or two while we tinkered again with the concept. Um, so after we did work from Kindred, um, we again needed to continue having money coming in to survive as we all do. And that's when uh, Patrick came along with uh, the orange wine festival idea. And, you know, together we kind of ran with that to bring ticket sales in, which would, which allowed us to continue operating, in a healthy way. Um, but we can talk about that a little bit more, but just to get to the end of Kindred's evolution, um, during this phase of transitioning to the orange wine festival and the work from Kindred, you know, we understood we were coming into colder months and we had to make a change. So unfortunately we did have to, you know, let go some of our staff, um, and, you know, cut it down to a skeleton crew. And then we opened up a, new pop-up called Opera Ski, um, which we started uh, November or October 31st, a much slimmer menu, much smaller staff, hot cocktails, right. different menu, complete different menu. And this has allowed us to, again, survive and embrace the cold in a creative and fun way. And people have responded uh, really, really well. Um, yeah. So I'll stop there and then we can jump back into the... Yeah. So, so, so I am curious. So, so, so interesting that you guys have... Uh, Thanks for bringing you up to speed with both places. Um, so in July, I think I could be wrong, or so at some point, the city finally decided that it would allow uh, indoor dining. I think a lot of that was coming from pressure. You had a lot of restaurants, especially in you know Queens, et cetera, that were on the border of towns where you know there was Long Island right across the border, and you know three doors down, basically they you know you heard restaurateurs trying to sue the city, saying why you know they're letting people inside their re- establishments, and you, we're still not doing it here, right? So there was definitely a push from certain places to to make sure that that would happen, and the city finally relented and allowed twenty five percent indoor dining. Um, did you guys think about it and did you open indoor dining or not? Uh, we, yeah, well, we think about everything, (laughs) but we never realistically thought about that. We thought about that long enough to literally think that it wasn't even worth asking our staff. Um, we went to our staff and essentially told them, this is what we're thinking. We don't think it's safe. Do you feel differently? And I don't think anyone said anything remotely Mm -hmm. different to that. And then we were like, okay, then let's start talking about ways that we could do this safely yeah. that everyone feels and safe. I yeah, think- Ruffian, you can't. You have to squeeze by people in order to use the restroom. There's right. just yeah. 25% of Ruffian is like you're still on top of each other. Yeah, and I think you know, the bigger picture here, which we all you know talked about, and uh, is that 
you know, obviously everyone's struggling. People were trying to get back to work. Businesses are trying to stay open. And for the folks who don't have any outside dining, I understand why they were pushing for 25%. However, in the big picture of what's going on in the country right now, there's no one who would agree and say 25%, number one, is sustainable and will save your business. But also, number two, the writing was on the wall, even in the summer, from all the experts saying that November, October, November, come, you know, come the winter, this thing is coming back and there's no way anyone's going to be able to survive, you know, indoor dining without having the cases increase. And that's proven to be true. Um, we're in it right now as we're talking. We're we're at two point six percent in Manhattan. You know, it's nineteen percent increase in Newark. We have Chicago and San Francisco have shut indoor dining down, and many other countries and other cities will follow here. And it was just, you know, from my perspective, and I think Alexis and Pat would agree, it was a little confounding to see, you know, other larger restaurateurs, uh, certainly in New York City you know, jump on 25% just because they could, knowing the, the consequences. And we're so close to a vaccine, the, the quickest the vaccine has ever been created. <laughs> and why ruin it now? Why, why couldn't we wait a little bit, just keep doing outdoor dining, keep the cases low? People couldn't wait because there's been no help. And right, yeah. I think you're, you're speaking to two issues, Moshe, that just popped into my mind while you were speaking was, um, Adam, you mentioned restaurateurs out on the fringes of the city, which have totally different challenges than what we have in Manhattan. And that speaks to totally. the totally ham-fisted approach to all of these regulations that have just been like, you know, just like a hammer where a scalpel will do. And just not looking at the individual needs and the individual um Mm-hmm. situations of the different zip codes and how yep. they operate and just being i mean certainly now this closing at 10 p.m thing which is for outdoor which is completely idiotic yeah it's just been incredibly frustrating i understand why if you're a restaurant with no frontage and 25 percent of your restaurant will actually bring in enough sales i see that quandary and i understand why some people decided to do it for survival purposes yep yeah because we have a different situation. We're very fortunate to have more seating outside than we actually have inside. But mm-hmm. that's because people have been backed into a corner with absolutely no help. I have We have restaurant friends who didn't want to open inside but didn't have a choice right. if they wanted to survive. There's no help. There's no right. help and there's no help coming anytime soon. Yep, that's completely true. And that's, and that's a really, really good point. Yeah, and I would add to that is that you know earlier in the pandemic – you know, when we were all dealing with the same unknowns, you know, a lot of the bigger voices in our in our industry were, you know, pushing for we got to get our insurance, we got to get this relief, we got to get that. But the moment 25% hit, they all kind of went quiet. And, you know, for, to me, that's pretty troubling, because now we're in a situation where they're going to shut down all indoor probably by Monday, if I were to guess by next week, as the cases continue to go up. Right, so just just we're we're talking Friday the thirteenth, just so yeah, if people listening to yeah. this when it will run next week, no, yeah, absolutely, and I think I think by the time people listen to this, they'll you know Cuomo and De Blasio will probably shut all indoor dining down, and then where does that leave everyone? But we're back to square one, but with you know even more cases, you know the folks who weren't able to survive without twenty five percent will still be in the same situation. So Alexis is right, and I agree. It's it comes down to focusing on what really will help, which is you know, the Restaurants Act being passed and getting more PPP and the PUA getting restored to give everyone a lifeline to get through the winter and get through, you know, outdoor dining without having uh, cases go up, you know, and stop relying on, you know, scarier situations of having people indoors. I'm saying the science is clear, you know, it's indoors, indoor dining and gyms. Well, well, but so, so I think that's interesting that you bring that up, Moshe, because I, I think Alexis, what you said is is really true that people have been backed into a corner and and some of the restaurateurs I've talked to have said it's actually not fair to pin it on them. Like if you look at the article that came out this morning in the Washington Post, what they're basically have proven is actually they're now saying that this this new spike is actually to be blamed on basically people around the country who've said fuck it and made their pods bigger and have had people inside their homes. You know, and that there was a lot of people who have, have had people over to watch football because we've decided that the NFL and college football should still happen this fall. And so people have viewing parties and, you know, it's spreading just as much there as on the restaurants, but the, the easiest thing to blame is the restaurants, right? And 
it's it's not fair to just blame them and penalize them, especially when there's no relief, right? So you're going to have people who keep pushing back and saying, no, like, please let us stay open at 25% or going to try to break the rules because they need to survive. Um, and so I, I think that there's like, it's, it's so much more nuanced. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you on some level, but I think we're, we, we've been discussing over the last few weeks, and I say over the last, you know, like two or three weeks, like, you know, four weeks ago, I would be saying the same thing as you. Right. Is that what you guys would say, Motion Alexis? You know, we're like, well, you know, New York is, isn't like the place where it's not the epicenter of this anymore. Um, we don't know enough about these facts. It seems very poor, like very poor decision to have indoor dining to us. Yeah. But um, you know, the cases are low and no one's proving that this is there. We've heard statistically that it might. And then over each week, more and more statistics have come out to the point that this morning when you know, we were we were just trying to um, talk over and you know just talk over our normally normal morning meeting stuff. Like, yeah, um, the numbers that we're hearing are now so jarringly overwhelming. We had talked about close, not talked. The city and state had said they would close indoor dining if it was at two percent or would reevaluate. Mm-hmm. We are so far past that point that we are now talking and possibly going to have to close public schools before closing the the, the indoor dining. Right. Um, and um, from what we've heard, that at least in San Francisco, but we've heard this also way months ago in Canada, they were saying that they can prove quite clearly, or they see statistical trends that show that indoor dining um, dramatically affects this. And we started indoor dining, and now uh, they, they keep saying it's always about a month after when you do something, right? So here we are. We're in a fucking disaster. Yeah. Um, a month ago, our people, we would have been more understanding, but... For the major players in the industry that um, have connections to scientists, to good lawyers, to consultants, to politicians, and are smart and thoughtful and should be doing this stuff, they have been surprisingly silent as New York went from 2% to 2.2, 2.4, 2.5, 2.6. And now, are we literally going to wait until Monday? On Monday, we're going to be at 3%, right? For sure. So, um, I... I, uh, I think that um, the goal po- the goals have changed, or the goalposts have been moved, um, and unfortunately, pressure from a lot of these restaurateurs has caused those goal po- uh, goalposts to move. Um, I do think the government is, you know, especially the you know federal government is to blame for their inaction and just overwhelming stupidity. But, um, but you know, like this, the city and state government had rules and didn't follow them. Um, and restaurateurs that knew better seemed to lean in and try to force them and are still forcing them to act in a way that's dangerous to the other civilians and, uh, and you know, livelihoods of other New Yorkers. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I completely agree with you that, that I think it still spreads inside. Like, I, I hope that tomorrow when this comes out, this applies more pressure not only on politicians, and I hope, you know, everyone is doing this, but also other restaurateurs to say this is crazy. And, you know, like if it comes to things about outdoor dining that affect us more, obviously, we're understanding too. We think that the, the government needs to act very aggressively. You know, it should be smart. As Lexus said, acting aggressively can be the scalpel, not the hammer, you know, but that doesn't mean, you know, like we think they should be acting aggressively, but from a more thoughtful perspective. And if we had already agreed that 2% was the threshold, mm-hmm. what are we doing? So why do you think that so many of these restaurateurs are not is it a money grab is it a they don't think that their their customers will eat on the sidewalk um you know because they have gone silent but i mean you're closer even to a lot of the people in the restaurant business than than i am covering it do you have an idea of why this could be i mean the smart restaurateurs that we know that work at their own restaurants are not doing indoor dining and the few that are are doing it very cautiously and are doing way more precautions than what are being required of them so yeah, they're doing we're not, it under we're not connected to the larger restaurant groups and um, we've tried to gauge from them stuff. But, um, you know, uh, the, the largest restaurateur in our neighborhood, uh, 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 Ravi Durasi, we've spoken to. I mean, you know, he's I, I don't think his places are focusing or, or on indoor dining. And I don't know if they're doing much of any, if any at all. You know, so it seems like big restaurateurs also like him are you know quite clear about the science and everything else about this. And. It doesn't mean like we all we would all love to sit more people indoors and make more money. Um, you know, I think Moshe's also he's talked a lot about Kindred, you know, and, and all these changes. But one thing he didn't say was um, post PPP loan, 
Kindred has simply lost money every week. We're, we're not trying to figure out how to make money. We're just trying to figure out how to lose as little right. as we can, continue to pay our landlords and employees and vendors as much as we can, and continue to pay as much tax to the government as we can. That's all we're doing. We're not making money. We're, we are literally losing money every week. Yep. Right. Yeah, so, I think, you know, 25% more sales or something that won't ever add up to 25% because no one wants to eat indoors. Stupid. Right. Yeah, I don't have a good answer for you, Adam, about why are they doing it. I there's no, I don't think there is a good answer, and I, I don't know. It's it's just been disappointing, honestly. To uh, I, I personally think some of them can diversify. I think some of them probably have enough investorship to sit tight. Yeah, yeah, um, and then relaunch. And I think some of them have large and diverse companies that can focus on other revenue streams besides um, sit down dining. Interesting. But I think, you know, also just in terms of outdoor dining, you know, obviously that's safer. And but I, I will say just as a general note, in terms of the cases rising, it, it's also been concerning how the general public, I think, has kind of taken a little bit of a back step just based on the inquiries that I get at Kindred in terms of large parties. Oh, yeah. Now, while we can we're legally allowed to have t- a 10 person group you know, at a table, but I'm getting inquiries for 15, 20, 25. Oh yeah, completely. And it's, you know, I've gotten, I would say 30 to 40 in the last two weeks. Um, and at the same time, I've also gotten probably 10 cancellations due to COVID or exposure to COVID in the last five days. Wow. And so there's something going on where, you know, the, obviously we, the information is out there, but for some reason it seems to be directed, you know, it's, it's, digesting to in some people and, and others maybe not. So that's also been interesting to see. Well, yeah. And Moshe, don't you think that's also, that's sort of turning a blind eye uh, themselves personally, not realizing like that's, you know, a risk to take to have a lar- a group of, you know, 15 people, but also putting restaurants in a really awkward situation yeah. that we legally cannot accommodate you. And you know, that's added duress to restaurants to have to say no or try to, I mean, our job is to make people happy and say yes to most things. And, um, and we can't, you know, we can't. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's sort of the, what, what I'm curious about. And this seems like where our conversation is evolving is, you know, me bringing up the, the, the indoor of people is it seems like at the same time that restaurateurs like you responsible ones are realizing it's a problem and shouting, you know, we should shut this down again, et cetera. You have this population in the country that is just kind of over it. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're being looser and, and they're, they're saying, okay, fine. Like I'll, I'll get together inside with my, you know, with my 10 friends. Um, or, I mean, it's shocking to me that you're having those calls, but I'm not surprised that people are looking and saying, Hey, can we have 15 or 20 person gatherings? I look out in the, in the park in Brooklyn and I see 30 people sitting together and I'm like, these people are all not in the same pod. Like there's just no way. You know, and so, and all of that then is affecting the restaurant industry because the, you know, the larger the spreads, the more, you know, these restrictions happen and they, restaurants can't reopen and people are out of work and the government's providing no support. So what have you thought about as this is clearly probably going to get worse, right? We're talking two weeks before Thanksgiving. There's a lot, if you read any of the data, the, the government's really, all the top scientists are predicting that we're gonna have a massive super spreader event because people aren't going to listen and they're going to go home. Um, you just, you know, do a quick search on kayak and every single rental car in the city is out Mm -hmm. around those dates. Right. So people clearly plan that they're leaving and they're going to either go home and get COVID and bring it back to the city, or they're going to take COVID to wherever they're going. So we're going to see a huge, you know, super spreader event in the next probably two weeks. Um, have you guys thought about closing? Uh, is that something that you want to do? Um, or that you feel like you'll be forced to do? Like, what is going through your minds as we're, we're getting into a, a time in the year where we think COVID is going to spread pretty dramatically and it's also going to get super cold? <sighs> I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> um, Adam, you asked before whether we thought about doing indoor dining. Um, and to, you know, in all reality, we didn't really think about doing it. We just brought up the idea because we bring up ideas. And, you know, we try to talk about everything. Um, whereas closing, um, we had already made a, an agreement, um, you know, loose terms that we would close. We were saying probably right before Christmas and close for a couple of weeks, uh, just planning it out, you know, more than a couple months in advance, just cause our staff would need to know, you know, we, we were trying to figure out how, you know, is there going to be government aid? 
So we've been thinking about that. Um, and I have a five-year-old, so I've already been thinking about the the high po- possibility that like right after Thanksgiving, there might be no more public school or something like that. So I think that those things have been percolating around. The last three weeks has been like, I mean, it's, it's like there's a, a stop sign, you know, like the lights already turned red and a car is speeding towards that stop sign. And as a on, onlooker, you know, seeing a kid walking out into the street, you're like, oh, he's got to stop. Oh, they've got to stop. Oh, they've got to stop. And they keep going as fast as they're going. That's what we're watching right now. Um, you know, and like our plans for, oh, of course we'll be able to make it till January, I mean, to December and then close, you know, are being scuttled by the, uh, I mean, the insanity that's going on right now. Um, I think we're jumping almost like 200% in one month uh, in the country, not in the city, but maybe, maybe in the city too. I don't know. Um, so, you know, the, uh, the current situation, I think we are now having to reevaluate things almost daily. Um, and, like I don't, we never plan to be reevaluating a decision that's only three weeks away, three weeks away. But we are being forced to do that because people are being irresponsible. Whereas before, we were being forced to do that, when we still are, because the government's giving poor indication of what's going on. Um, so yes, if you're asking, I'm, I'm sure this is a broader conversation we need to talk about. But yes, we are planning about this, and this is something that we've barely even gotten to have a meeting about because things have gotten so bad in one week. Right, it's crazy. Yeah, we had, you know, we had multiple meetings about, like Pat said, what happens come the break, you know, in December, a planned break, and then, you know, whether there's PPP again or not, then we would make a decision of, you know, what kind of service we would offer, or do we, you know, take a pause while there is government relief. But as Pat's saying, this thing is happening now in real time, where by next week, we might be forced, who knows what this city's going to do. And so we like the past, we haven't even had a chance to have a full meeting about it, but it, we'll, be, we'll be dealing with it in real time as the things change by the hour um, and see. And hopefully we can make it until our plane break if it's safe. Um, if not, we'll have to, uh, you know, adapt and navigate the other course. Yeah, I think our, our initial plan, which, as Pat was saying, is getting kind of scuttled, was, you know, surely there will be relief by then and we can hibernate mindfully and thoughtfully unlike in the summer where it was sort of like forced upon us um and we'll plan it out and it'll you know we'll be able to pay people and everyone will get a break because as we've mentioned several times we've reinvented ourselves at two restaurants over and over and over again and continue to do so you know everyone's kind of exhausted and needs a reset and now it's like you know, reports are saying there won't be any relief until at least um, the administration changes. And, you know, that's after our planned break was to happen. So, you know, ruffians holding steady. Kindred is, you know, struggling week to week. And then are we going to hibernate on on what? You know, we've we've tried to to be like the ants, but we're going to end up being forced to be like the grasshopper, you know? Right. It's, yeah, it is. It's really, it's just really insane. Um, and yeah, I think that the biggest moral of the story is back to what we talked about the last time we spoke, which is that the government needs to provide relief and there needs to be more pressure put on the government to do so. For sure. And interesting, as, as we're talking, I just got an email from the uh, Department of Transportation <laughs> about new guidelines for roadway barriers as we're getting into the winter. Oh, and, lovely. <laughs> and enclosures and snow. But, you know, again, it's like, They've, they've been co- consistently two months behind everything in terms of guidelines, but this is not the most important thing right now. You know, why are they sending this out when we need to focus on what are we doing with indoor dining? Will we have to shut the whole city down or the country down for another two weeks to, to kind of quell this new surge? So so we're going to have to re, uh, redo our barriers again, guys, <laughs> potentially. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I think yeah, the, the, all of this just shows, you know, of all the conversations that I've you know, been lucky to have with people like yourselves who've been gracious with your time to, to talk with me. Um, you know, just all the red tape is insane and all the, all the changing regulations, um, you know, things that I think the normal consumer doesn't realize, you know, we, I did an interview yesterday with James, the owner of Papina, and I don't think consumers realize that even to have heaters in his backyard, he has to bring the fire department in to, you know, to approve everything, right? Like he can't just order them and set them up. So he's had them for two weeks and hasn't been able to turn them on. You know, so that's insane. People aren't thinking about things like um, electricity. This is old New York. Most yeah. restaurants in the city don't have enough power 
uh, most of them don't have enough power to power the equipment they do have. Never mind adding 1,200, uh, 1,500 watt heaters outside, multiples. Yeah. You know, we had to have the electrician in. It's just been... You, and sometimes you don't know, we don't know if we're throwing good money after bad because right. it's all a gamble. And we're like, maybe this will pay off, but maybe it won't at a time when we don't have extra money to throw around. And it's really scary. You know, every time we pull the trigger on a decision like to upgrade our enclosure, to uh, add decoration, to put in more lighting, er get the electrician in. Every time we make one of those decisions, it's like, man, I hope that pays out. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, I completely agree with you. I I think, and I think, you know, hopefully we're helping, but sort of to to take this a little bit full circle to back to the, you know, the, the phone, the phone menu idea. It's like, I feel like consumers need to be much more aware of all that restaurants are going through. So when you show up, like you should be lucky that you're able to eat outside and have an experience at all, right? This ex- this expectation that maybe that there's heaters that keep you warm enough, or that the decor looks nice enough, or you know, is is all kind of ridiculous. You know, everyone's just trying to do what they need to do. Yeah, even if the restaurant has heaters, please dress appropriately for the weather. You know, it's not yeah. <laughs> it's not the beach. And you know, I, I think to your point, Adam. I, I you know, as as rest, as restaurateurs, I think we would put that olive branch out to customers and say, just be mindful of you know how long you're sitting and how you know are you canceling or no showing? Please let us know you know as much time in advance. I, I had to you know send out a text to all of the reservations tonight. You know, you know we'll be enforcing our cancellation policy because we had you know probably sixty no shows or cancel heads wise, like 20 reservations equals 60 people, yeah. you know, over in the last couple of weekends, um, for whatever reason, some of them are COVID related, some are not, some people just forget and they don't show up and that, you know, we're working on such thin margins that if I don't have that table available and you no show or cancel just an hour or two hours before, that's gonna, that's a hundred dollars or $200. Um, right. and all of that is, you know, every, every bit of money is important right now. So, I mean, I guess to kind of wrap all this up, because we've, we've, we've talked for, for a good amount of time now, you know, what, what should, what do you guys think that consumers could be doing to help support you more? And what can we do, uh, obviously, with the elected officials in order to make sure that they, and what do you want them to hear from you right now that they should be doing in order to support you more? Well, I would, I would say to our, our guests and any guest who wants to join, come to Ruffian and Kindred, keep do, you know, for us, we're so grateful that people continue to book uh, table at either spot and some do both in one night and we we hope that people continue to do that and then we have our wine shop at ruffian that people have been ordering from i think staying consistent with that and our loyal customers are great and we welcome that we're doing so many i think interesting and fun things at both spots ruffian we have our regular service menu we're doing everything but the bird for thanksgiving that you can pre-order and get you know get it delivered or pick it up where it's a delicious menu, but except the bird, uh, it's uh, vegetarian and vegan. Um, at and we're about to go into a new pop up at Ruffian that I'll let Pat talk about. And at Kindred, we're doing this opera ski pop up where you can enjoy hot cocktails and some delicious food, um, alpine themed. Um, so I would say just continue to dine with us um, and keep those guidelines in mind and how much we have to put in to 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 offer a service and an experience. Yep. Um, and on the, on the politician side, I think, I think the challenge is, you know, they're constantly two months behind and I wish they would get on the ground a little bit more and talk to smaller, small businesses to understand what, what, what's we need, what, what are we anticipating? Um, and certainly on the federal level, we, we need, the restaurants act to pass. We need more grants and certainly the PPP would go a long way and they need to restore the PUA to give, you know, unemployed people who are unemployed, you know, a lifeline as well. Patrick, you want to add anything or Alexis? Yeah, totally. Moshe mentioned our last, you know, last place at Ruffian. We're we're now switching into our kind of like what we were expecting for winter. We've been expecting winter. Um, for the Department of Transportation and for our mayor and for, um, you know, the city and state officials, um, obviously winter's coming, but w- winter was on the, was on the calendar, you know, from the beginning of the year, right? <laughs> yeah. like, winter's literally on the calendar for next year also. 
So right. um, that, that's I why I bought heaters in winter. August. <laughs> right, exactly. We, we've been expecting winter for a long time. So you know, as far as um, I um, I work in the industry, I guess in a way, my wife doesn't. You know, she's um, loosely participates in a restaurant, but also is a you know, it's a partner and like thinks about it. But I mean, she doesn't spend her day to day on this. Instead would say, you know, I don't want to worry about stuff all day long. I've got to worry about my business and other businesses, you know. And so for a lot of people, I think um, the uh, staying up to the minute with what's going on with COVID, finance, everything else, is probably not what we all need. We need more relaxation in our lives. We need less worries. But um, that doesn't mean that the truth goes out the window. You know, like, um, and so I think for, for the two of us, you know, we, we try to think, you know, we try to protect ourselves from all the scary thoughts at times, but at least have a plan that's realistic and based on what's going on uh, out there. Um, so Ruffian Kindred is converting into an opera ski because obviously it was going to be cold. And for multiple months, we've been preparing for how do we enjoy outdoors in the cold. Um, at Ruffian, we will now convert ourselves into we're calling base camp. Um, which is supposed to um, give people a fun experience of like what it feels like to be at, you know, maybe almost like base camp at um, Kilimanjaro or, you know, at uh, uh, any of the big guys in Europe or, you know, so, um, or Matterhorn, you know, so like an opportunity to feel, um, to, to have fun outdoors in the cold and make it a, um, an exciting experience. We're all clear that we're out there because of COVID and because, you know, so we're not denying the truth, but, at least in that opportunity, you get to go have an exciting time in, um, a, you know, I think one of the safer ways that one can enjoy themselves right now um, and building some story and narrative around it. But uh, as far as people in general, especially when it comes to our relationship to our politics and to, you know, our government officials and what we can say and what we can do, obviously support us as long as it's safe. We don't want to be outside causing New York a problem if it's no longer safe. So we understand that, but I think what, um, what we would hope for people is like some of these things, and especially nationally of COVID, but also locally in New York, were inevitable. Inevitable. No scientists that we know of, you know, were saying anything other than this for this winter, right? Everyone has said the right. same thing for half a year straight. So I don't understand at what point um, New York City, New York State's government, well, obviously, the national government is a fucking shit show. We haven't talked about them, and we don't need. Um, you know, I feel bad for our city and state that they need to pick up the pieces that the worst president ever has left, but when Congress ever. But um, you know, the uh, the reality for them is this, and I think that they they need to stop moving goalposts and doing stupid things. They need knew the truth, and we as a public need to be supportive of that truth. Um, and if that means closing restaurants down now to protect public schools, if we can, we should do that. And if that means closing even outdoor dining down, if that's what has to happen, I think as a public, we should be supportive of it. But at least expect people to have a plan, especially a plan around the, you know, the poorest people, the people that are um, uh, most in need right now. And in terms of normal employees and insurance, like, can we seriously as a nation get some kind of plan around PUA and you know, what insurance looks like when everyone gets let go in a couple of days, right? Like that stuff is, that's imminent. You know, in a couple of weeks, people will lose their job. They will lose insurance. We had this plan in place over summer. We need this plan again. You know, and I think the pressure needs to build up on, uh, on this horrific president and this horrific Congress that it is not, we do not, we cannot wait until January for this stuff, maybe for other stuff, maybe for the PPP loan, but we cannot wait until January for unemployment benefits and for, um, you know, security for uh, for employees and low-wage employees specifically. So, yes, I would hope, you know, support us, but I, I also hope people support the truth. And, and once again, this truth was inevitable. We all knew. We just tricked ourselves into thinking otherwise. Like, support the truth and support politicians when they're going to, you know, when they're, when they're delivering us hard truths. Well, guys, I really want to thank you again for taking the time uh, to talk to me about both what's happening with with your businesses, but also just giving really great insight that that we all should really pay attention to. It's always great to talk to the three of you. Um, and I, you know, I know it's not going to be an easy uh, few months, but I appreciate that you're always willing to to make the right decisions um, and really think about you know what's happening 
you know, as a whole. And I think you're, you're really great examples for a lot of other uh, people in the business. So I, I just, I appreciate you uh, a lot. And thanks again for, for joining me on the podcast. Well, thanks, Adam. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you enjoy listening to us every week, please leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced by myself and Zach Jabal. It is also mixed and edited by him. Yeah, Zach, we know you do a lot. I'd also like to thank the entire Vine Pair team, including my co-founder, Josh, and our associate editor, Kat Lewinsky. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.